You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Verge. My name is Natasha Bajima. I'm the director of the Converging Risks Lab. In this episode, we're going to be continuing a discussion with Ron Pfizer and Andy Weber in which we discuss uh, what types of weapons, technologies, and scenarios should fit within a category of weapons of mass destruction or weapons of mass effect. If you're interested in this issue and you want to read up on this topic, I've written a series of briefers for the Council on Strategic Risks. The first one is called Beyond Weapons of Mass Destruction, Time for a New Paradigm. Um, The second one is entitled Definitions Matter, the Role of WMD in Shaping U.S. National Security Strategy. And the final and third um, briefer in this series is called Weapons of Mass Agility, a New Threat Framework for Mass Effects in the 21st Century. I will include the links to those documents in the show notes. And for now, let's go to the interview. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. Today, we're continuing a discussion with Ron Pfizer and Andy Weber to help advise the new administration about next steps in countering WMD and other weapons of mass effect. Ron Pfizer is a retired US Army Colonel and fellow at LMI. He served in the force for 30 years in various command staff and leadership positions across the Army, Joint Staff and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Andy Weber is a senior fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. He is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs and has spent decades working to reduce the risk of WMD. Ron, Andy, welcome back to On the Verge. Thanks, Natasha. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be back with you, too. So we've talked for two episodes now. We've talked about whether the Biden administration should reboot the countering WMD strategy from 2002. We've also discussed new technologies and scenarios that are not considered WMD that should potentially be considered within the context of any new national strategy on mass effect. Today, we're gonna wrestle with how to scope the problem set of weapons of mass destruction, mass effect and related scenarios. So whenever I've talked about broadening our understanding of mass destruction, mass effect scenarios, I've been confronted by a number of persistent concerns. WMD are special, they say, sufficiently different from other threats. Okay, uh, acknowledged. Oh, by doing this, I'm muddying the mission space. Okay. Um, Adding additional threats would compromise our ability to counter WMD with limited resources. Definitely don't want to do that. But my all-time favorite was the suggestion that if we add anything more to the WMD bucket, we might as well add machetes to that list. A lot of these concerns and resistance that I've gotten to kind of thinking more broadly about Mass Effect led me to explore why WMD are different from all other threats. And so while I was still at NDU, 
I led a series of focus groups where we examined what are the criteria for a weapon of mass destruction in order to determine whether there were other scenarios or threats that might fit into the same category. And so I wrote a series of briefers for CSR based on this work. And in the final one, I propose a set of criteria for deciding what technologies threat scenarios should be considered as mass effect threats that are similar to WMD. So today I'd like to kind of hash through some of the criteria that we think are the most important for determining what scenarios and threats the Biden administration should consider if they're going to reboot such a strategy. And so I'll just open up to the discussion to see what your initial ideas are about the top criteria. So Ron, I'll go to you first. Okay, thanks, Natasha. Um, first of all, great work on bringing together those focus groups and eliciting some of the feedback. Now, uh, I'm not sure that machete should fall into that bucket, nor should anything that's just widely proliferated around the globe. But I think it does highlight the fact that as this area has evolved, um, that we do need a, uh, a framework or a set of criteria to really look at as we expand that definition or just even refine that definition, what falls in there. And I think one of the things that key themes I took away from your framework was effects and the different types of effects can certainly be types of uh, or criteria to assess whether a technology should fall into that. I think another criteria that maybe started to allow you to screen is, um, is the technology that we're talking about for consideration covered by some other broad area. So we have, you know, definitions for kinetic weapons. We have definitions for ballistic missiles, cruise missiles. There are a number of categories that while they may become a delivery system themselves, uh, the payload maybe is what defines the, uh, the aspect that would be considered by um, including it in the definition of a weapon of mass destruction. So I would first say, let's screen out those things that already have a category, acknowledge their complementary effects, but maybe not muddy the waters further by trying to include the delivery system or a different technology into this bucket. Um, another criteria that I think is important is um, on the effects side, but the, um, the response to that is, does this overwhelm both the uh, capability and capacity and technical abilities of existing systems? And so, for example, we saw in Salisbury, we've seen in other uh, even hazmat responses that that the just taking the chemical aspect of it very quickly overwhelms even what a well-trained, well-equipped uh, first responder set of uh, units can do in a municipality. And that doesn't even account for the intent of the use, just the, the effects of the use. And so I think that's another criteria when you start to look at that and it's a combination of capability, capacity and the technical ability you start to have another characteristic that says this falls beyond the scope of just being able to deal with a natural disaster or a hazmat response or some of the, the uh, uh, normal trauma that results from everyday large scale accidents, but still are manageable within a city or municipality. Those are a couple additional criteria that I think um, would help us to, to better solicit input and start to bound what else do we need to add to the WMD uh, portfolio or definition beyond the traditional chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear aspects that tend to be the comfortable terms we use today. And I'll turn that over. Maybe I'm sure Andy has some uh, ideas on what else we should be looking at. Yeah, I agree, uh, um, Ron. And, and Natasha, this is a, a valuable uh, input into, into this discussion. 
um, you know, for me, it's about consequences. So high consequence, whether it's high probability, low probability, it's the consequences. Now, I suppose those could be more than mass casualties. It could include uh, economic dislocation, for example, a biological attack on our livestock um, industry um, would have enormous impact given that such a large uh, percentage of our economy. Um, the, other, the other factor I think we should consider is the asymmetric nature. So is this something that, that a small team, whether it's uh, covert operatives of a nation state or a terrorist group could effectively deliver? And then um, I would argue maybe for a deletion. I think a radiological, um, you know, so-called dirty bombs are, are overrated and don't belong in the definition of weapons of mass destruction because um, they wouldn't kill a lot of people. Uh, they wouldn't spread a lot of radiation. Um, you know, they might cause a financial center to make, you know, be difficult to re restart operations because of the fear, but, but public education ahead of time that, that um, explains that the consequences aren't that dire in spite of the movies uh, would go a long way to lessening that. That's really interesting. I want to kind of pick up on something that you both raised, types of effects. And I think that this was a, a major part of the discussions that I had a number of years ago. Do we have to have mass casualties, for example, to be considered a weapon of mass destruction? So Andy, when you suggest that radiological bombs would not lead to a lot of casualties more than at least a conventional um, attack with similar explosives, um, does cyber the cyber is cyber a cyber attack that that causes a lot of economic damage. For example, the Colonial Pipeline um, attack that just happened that led to a lot of um, fuel shortages on the East Coast. Is that not a potential weapon of mass effect? Oh, I think it is. Cyber could be. I think that particular attack was managed within a week or so by the market, essentially. Um, but cyber attacks, I, I do foresee a category of cyber attacks. Um, that could have really, really devastating uh, physical world consequences uh, that probably should be included in this definition. So Ron, just back to you, do we need casualties? Is that an absolute um, metric for considering a weapon of mass effect? So I, I think um, in certain discussions, I believe it absolutely is because it starts to get to the um, scale of consequences that Andy highlighted to where um, lots of people that are ill, um, but manageable, the, the scale of the, the ripple effects of consequences becomes less, whereas casualties, either those that are dead or require uh, significant uh, levels of care start to change the scales of the consequences. I think the other challenge is, as we're discussing this is that um, there's also a detail of the effects uh, to what end. So there's the legal definition of a weapon of mass destruction or mass effect and those things that are going to be actions taken to respond, uh, whether it's prosecutorial or just in the uh, pursuit of um, both the offender and the effects. Um, then there's the operational definitions. And I think sometimes that's where we're gonna find that not everything neatly fits together um, because the casualties on an operational scale 
um, may not matter for the uh, judicial scale, but from a standpoint of operational and economic, uh, significantly larger impacts um, because of the resources invested. I th and I think that's where the challenge comes of uh, overarching definition trying to be applied to multiple um, really spaces that range from, again, the judicial, the operational, uh, the medical definitions of it. And, and we've seen that to where uh, even the judicial starts to cross over into the uh, uh, rule of law globally and the standard of norms. And so kind of back to that reason why I think casualties does matter, but it's this type of casualty is that consequences starts to influence whether or not those, those individuals in those spaces really pay attention to this or dismiss it because it doesn't rise to the threshold of, do I really get interested in having a specific definition? Um, I'm comfortable with the old definition because it's good enough. And what you're proposing, while it's important to one community, may not be enough to drive the conversation in the others. So one thing that's um, interesting here is sometimes, you know, we we look at an attack that's already occurred and we look at the consequences that, that occurred as a result of that attack. And I'll just bring up Salisbury. Here we have a Novichuk agent, um, certainly capable of killing lots and lots of people. Um, but it wasn't intended that way, right? So, so one of the reasons in my briefer, I say that there's a potential for mass effects. So maybe, is it enough that something has the potential to kill a lot of people? Is that enough to be considered under such a framework? So Natasha, I actually, uh, I, I do think it's enough, but I think it's also one as we start to tease that out to where we understand that the potential for those mass effects is also able to maybe be analyzed in, you know, both the terms of the consequences, um, but not just financially, but um, it, it may be the consequences to a society, the disruption that, as you mentioned with Salisbury of, you know, there were weeks where life as they knew it in that town did not continue to exist and restrictions existed even beyond when they were relaxing. And we're dealing with some of that with COVID as we start to see, you know, now that we understand that vaccinations provide high level effectiveness, that we can relax some of those standards. I think the other part of the consequences is being able to then look at those mass effects and assess what is the cost to prepare and potentially prevent the event from happening versus the cost if the event does happen, even if it's very low uh, likelihood. Because I think if we started looking at those things in that manner, we may start to see that we'd pull out the specific aspects of the WMD elements in the definition and say, we can't ignore this. And I think, you know, to Andy's point, we'd have a very good debate on whether, you know, radiological uh, is a definition of a WMD that we really need to be that concerned about, or are there things that we can do that are relatively low cost that can pull it out of that definition and focus on resources on the ones that if they ever happen, um, they may not have the same scale of a large nuclear attack um, from a standpoint of physical, but from a standpoint of physical, emotional, mental, and economic, they may be big enough to where we say, investing a little bit of money to prevent this um, is actually worth it. And I think that's part of the discussion of consequences that we don't typically get to. We just look at probability and consequences and kind of stop there and go, the consequences are high, but it's lo low likelihood. I think I'll bounce that back to Andy um, for two reasons. The first one you said, the colonial pipeline, we handled that within a week. So 
we didn't have a cascade of effects here. So I'm talking about second and third order effects. So that might be an additional criteria that we should load on to this effects question. But then I would also raise the radiological issue, the cleanup after a dirty bomb would be quite extensive. What's your thought? Yeah, that, well, that's what I mean. The psychological effect and the cleanup and how clean is clean uh, is obviously important. How do you regain the trust of the society that it's clean enough to move back into an area? Um, I would say um, in the case of the Salisbury attack and the Amerithrax attacks, um, we definitely want to uh, qualify, uh, uh, call those WMD attacks, even though the casualties were in one case, you know, one dead, in the other case, five dead. Um, that's because, uh, first of all, these are banned weapons. The Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention ban these weapons. So even a small use is totally abhorrent and needs to be dealt with as a WMD attack. But the other point is that perfume bottle uh, of Novichok uh, found in the dumpster had over 10,000 doses. The anthrax that Bruce Ivins produced um, was capable, and it wasn't his intent, but was capable of killing tens of thousands of people. So those were absolutely, uh, in your word, potential weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, so going back to something you said, Ron, you were talking about um, the ability of a weapon or threat to overwhelm existing systems. And one of the criteria that um, we came up with over the course of the small discussions that I thought was actually quite creative, but it's also complicated, um, hard to understand, I guess. It's a minimal target dependency. Um, so we thought about this on a sliding scale, and this has to do with the potential of the weapon or threat itself causing mass effect versus the vulnerability of the target. So obviously in, in a country where the public health system is not prepared and has low capacity for dealing with large outbreaks of infectious diseases, those areas are going to be far greater um, uh, affected by COVID-19 or some other infectious disease than a country that doesn't, that has uh, adequate public health. And so um, COVID-19, high transmissibility to be sure, um, is this a potential weapon of mass effect destruction? So I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it is, um, but I think it certainly has given us a lot of um, opportunity to learn on how to better assess those things that would fall in that criteria. And I think to the point of minimal target dependency, I like the criteria, but to me, I think that's one of the criteria that we'd wanna use to say, without creating a, a standardized list for our ability to develop solutions to address, but it certainly should maybe help us scope what are the areas um, that maybe the types of capabilities within a biological set that when um, they have a higher rating in that category would be ones that we want to focus on more and, and maybe even focus less on whether it's COVID or SARS or um, even a broader family uh, you know, maybe, or the, the Philo family it may be just as saying, here are the characteristics that um, they possess that actually increase our risk in that area. And therefore we need to, to in the implementation, uh, focus resources on capabilities. Um, 
I'm not sure that that's the best screening criteria to say that it gets into the list as maybe one of the ones that says, how do you manage the overall grouping of capabilities? And I, I'm avoiding it. You can tell I'm kind of stumbling around it because I really feel like lists have not served us well, but being able to group liked characteristics does serve us well because it gives us the flexibility and agility to respond to something, even if it's not on the list. And that's where I think the target dependency from the standpoint of um, impacts and effects, being able to, to not be specific to countermeasures or hardening that targets may have. And that hardening may be public education, which we typically don't think about that is if you understand how to respond to a, a, an event like COVID um, and know that you can take these protective measures and minimize the transmission and then remove the fear, then maybe you do have that hardening of the target and it doesn't make the list. In a rare disagreement with Ron, um, I would have to say SARS-CoV-2 um, meets my definition of weapons of mass destruction. Had it been deliberately introduced, 3 million dead, how could you not call that a WMD? Um, it, had, it wasn't deliberately introduced, it may have been accidentally introduced, but had it been deliberately introduced to the population, definitely uh, had the effects of a weapon of mass destruction. And what worries me going forward is that now enough is known about the functional genomics that um, a bad actor could enhance the lethality of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus in a way that brings the mortality up from 1% to a much higher number. Uh, transmissibility is already pretty darn good, uh, but the mortality has been relatively low which uh, makes me worried about the next uh, bioattack or pandemic uh, having much, much worse consequences than the current COVID pandemic, as bad as, and tragic as it is. Ron, do you wanna offer a rebuttal? So I, I am glad that you know, Andy pushed back on that. And I think that if those conditions were met, I would agree that th this certainly provides the context of you know, what would be the biological component of a weapons of mass destruction, whether it's the traditional or the evolved view that we're talking about trying to move towards. And I think that just reinforces the fact that um, if the next one is not SARS-CoV-2 or CoV-3 or figure out what variant, but it's something that acts like this, that has the enhanced, the similar transmissibility, but a higher lethality, then I would, I would just advocate that the, back to the target dependency piece, let's figure out what the target dependencies are that allow us to mitigate the effects of those in more broad terms versus in the specific list. So if it's a biological agent, they're gonna have a lot of similar characteristics, different from chemical, obviously very different from nuclear. And so, you know, I appreciate Andy pushing back because you're right. If you add those criteria, I absolutely agree. Um, and that's the other insight I think we get from something like this that we haven't had in the past, which has been those other events, while they've had significant consequences, they've been limited enough that many people academically and even politically have said, well, that's a WMD use, but not really a WMD use. It's WMD from the standpoint they're on the banned list but it didn't have back to what we're talking about the large effects. So see, they're not so bad. And I'd like to take those arguments off the table and say, let's not wait until they're so bad to where we're dealing with another implication like uh, the COVID-19 
pandemic um, and be better prepared. And so I, th I think you've brought up some good points and I'm glad Andy brought that up because I think that's probably the most valuable lesson learned that we can take away from it for this community is don't underestimate um, the impacts just because you can't find an attributable source. Let's learn from the fact that and get ahead of so there isn't a source that uses this as a weapon. Ron, I, I just add thank you, but I, I would just add that I share your uh, skepticism about lists. The fact that this wasn't on a list of threat agents doesn't make it any less deadly. Exactly. Thank you. So we talked a couple of times about the psychological aspect of weapons of mass destruction. This is something that um, the small groups that I talked to, we went over and over again. And that's one thing that actually makes weapons of mass destruction very special as a special category because they all invoke fear in the general population. And they all have similar um, characteristic of being of the effects being invisible or hard, harder to detect for people. And that leads to the fear factor. So um, a disease, you don't know you have it until you show symptoms. A nerve agent is invisible until you like fall over and die. Um, and then you know, radiation of course can, can affect you profoundly um, without you knowing it um, until several weeks later. Um, on the other hand, we've seen a lot of cyber attacks recently, some to great effect. We saw the solar winds, um, I think that was the end of 2020, December, and then more recently, the Colonial Pipeline attack. A number of years ago, we had the NotPetya attack in 2017 that led to a lot of global ramifications. But I see a lot of complacency in American public about cyber. Um, so I guess, is the fear factor an absolute criteria here because it has cascading effects as a result of the psychological impact? And do we anticipate that there might be a shift in the general public about cyber such that it could have more effects than it currently does? So Natasha, I, I think from the standpoint of, um, if we can for a second, take you know the traditional CBRN that you talked about and the fear factor that comes from that, I think, you know, Amshariko showed us that even the part that they were successful, there was a significant number, I think, uh, over a hundredfold of individuals that were worried well that reported and added to the um, ability to deal with that response. I think we've seen that, you know, the concerns about anthrax have been amplified, even though, as Andy mentioned, the Amerithrax attacks were very limited. Uh, we, uh, we've seen that, you know, in the shipments that came from Dugway, that there was an overwhelming response for something that was certainly should have never happened, but um, did not have weaponized anthrax material being shipped in open containers, but yet the, re the response to that was very significant. And again, not downplaying that it shouldn't have been, but I think those things get amplified both by even those that understand it, but some of the, um, quite frankly, the scientific or science fiction uh, portrayals of the effects of these. and. Sometimes people have a hard time sorting that out in the middle of the reality when the news cycle is just bringing you, here's the item we're dealing with. It's a white powdery substance. Once it gets on you, it does this. And all of a sudden they're not going and trying to get medical facts. They're just going based on whatever exposure they've had. I think when you bring in the cyber aspect of that, whether cyber is the one that's generating the events such as the colonial pipeline and the fear that can be potentially magnified. And I think it was in some cases, but it was managed or self-managed better. But when you add in the fact that what if it was, hey, this has occurred, there's not been any release of a chemical or biological agent, 
but people are now going, but I have those symptoms. And we saw that in the early stages of COVID of how do I know that I don't have allergies or the common cold? And all of a sudden, many people who did, I believe, started to react and say, well, then I think I have COVID. And now you start to stack up. There's psychological impacts that become real physical impacts to your medical treatment system so that those that need care may not be able to get into a, a, a medical treatment facility because they don't have significant enough symptoms, but they actually have the real symptoms, but they're, they're in the queue, so to speak. And so that's where I think cyber does play a big role. But I also go back to my earlier comment of, I think that cyber attacks are things that need to be managed as one of those specific technical areas that already has a community of practice that's working uh, to address those. And we need to work with them, but we really do need to understand the ability for cyber and information operations to amplify those things that don't have a home. So that a chemical attack that may seem to be small scale or biological now amplified by shutting down certain systems and then taking advantage of a um, deliberate information operation campaign to highlight those predisposed fears. We need to work with those communities with whatever strategy and implementation we come up with to account for that because it's no longer simply just launch the weapon and watch the effects. I also worry a lot about the escalation risk of these various attacks during peacetime. Um, you know, what if we, we had good attribution and knew that Russia, the government of Russia had launched that attack on our pipeline? You know, the, the chance over time that one of these aggression, you know, prov provocations during peacetime will quickly unfold and escalate into some kind of a hot war, I think is increasing. So we need, we need to pay attention to this, you know, this hybrid warfare situation or the reverse of that. What if um, a, uh, the Mumbai attack um, had, instead of using uh, AKs and explosives, had used anthrax? Well, the, uh, India's nuclear doctrine calls for responding to chemical and biological attacks with nuclear weapons. So you have this little terrorist group that could have started a, a nuclear war between India and Pakistan with anthrax. Um, so the, the escalation risk um, is really something we need to, to take into consideration. Ron, I'm really glad you brought up the issue of the news cycle and amplification um, over social media. I think it's a really important factor that, you know, is, is part of our, our existence today, but wasn't there 20, 30 years ago. And um, I think the potential here to take many different types of threats and scenarios and amplify their effects beyond what they could ever be um, is there. And um, that, that's one reason why I think we need to get out of our WMD box and think a lot more broadly. Yes, there are communities of interest and practice and mission spaces and all of that, but all the WMD professionals today live in the same world we do, the one with social media amplification. And if we're not thinking about those really important intersections, then we're going to run into circumstances that we haven't prepared for. Um, and so to close out this discussion, I would like uh, both of you to propose some steps that the Biden administration should take to broaden their aperture when they're thinking about 
mass effect scenarios how what, what what things do you suggest that they do first to kind of like explore this important issue so I, I think that some of the steps are already ongoing which is you know shifting and i know specifically in dod and and i think health and human services and others are starting to look at what can they take from the experiences of covid and apply that moving forward um I think the other thing that the administration has got to embrace is the fact that there is a community that uh, thinks about this on a regular basis. And some of those individuals are now serving in direct uh, roles, advising the president. But we have a lot of leadership across the federal government as well as state and local that really, maybe they've heard the term WMD, but really don't understand the nuances that we're talking about. And we don't need to make them experts but we certainly do need to help educate them so that um, if there's an event, they're prepared. And ideally, I think that we should use some of the, uh, the exercise uh, uh, venues that we've used successfully in transitioning administrations uh, that we use as part of FEMA's regional exercises to take a little bit of time and introduce some of these concepts, maybe not to shut down a normal exercise, but to expose them to if this was part of it, um, and it's not just the bio or the chem, but as you described, those amplified by the uh, ability to get facts out ahead of somebody who's trying to take advantage of that. Uh, I think we would be better served and it would help our nation's resiliency, whether it would be something that was a nefarious uh, act or if it was just a, uh, another accident or an accident that happened that somebody tries to take advantage of um, and maybe not to the the level that uh, Andy described in escalation, but certainly in the level of trying to use this as another way to erode confidence in our, our leadership and government, which then you know creates another problem. So I, I really think that the education and training piece has got to be something that we take on in addition to making sure that we have commitment back to uh, the standards and norms and international efforts to control and eliminate these types of weapons. I think that the training and education to me is one that should be for, for, forefront. I'm a little concerned with uh, Biden's first budget that was released recently. I haven't had a chance to comb through it in fine detail, but it seems that you know the president had it right in his first national security directive, number one, that um, made countering deliberate, accidental, and natural biological threats, a national security imperative. But the Department of Defense inexplicably, again, cut the ChemBio Defense Program. So um, either there's a, a little bit of um, reluctance to the, to the mission um, at the Department of Defense, or the president's team isn't sufficiently in place yet to um, implement his priorities, but that's really the, the, the main document that lays out your priorities is your budget. And a lot of the priorities are in there. Um, you know, electric, electrification of the, uh, the vehicles in our country, it's in there with real dollars. But uh, I don't see uh, the same emphasis in the Department of Defense uh, uh, Chem Bio Defense Program, which was inexplicably cut by the Trump administration and uh, apparently has been cut yet again. 
Thanks for mentioning that, Andy. I think that's a really important point. Um, you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and you got to track track the money, and that's where we put our priorities. So. We're going to conclude this with a final episode in a number of weeks um, where we wrap things up and make our final uh, recommendations on this uh, to the Biden administration. This has been an extremely fascinating discussion. So thanks to you both for coming on the show again. Thank you, Natasha. This has been a great discussion and thank you for all the good work you're doing on this topic. Absolutely. Thanks again. It, it's been great to be part of the dialogue and I look forward to uh, the next session. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.